This is the Asian Madness Podcast, a podcast where we discuss all things true crime, morbid, mysterious, and odd from the Asian continent. I am your host, Jessica. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode from the Asian Madness Podcast. Hopefully you're all doing well, eating healthy, taking care of your mental health, and of course, your physical health. Can't believe we're almost halfway through 2021. Time really does fly. Anyway, today's case is a disaster story. I've always wanted to cover the story, and I'm not sure if anyone else mentioned this to me as well, But since I have no record of it, I'll just have to credit myself for this case suggestion. This disaster took place in the year 2014 in South Korea. And when I first heard of it, I was very saddened, but also pretty passive about it. I didn't take the time to look into it, and I wish I had back then. Researching this case was definitely a bit of an emotional roller coaster, as it is extremely heartbreaking, and I may or may not have shed a few tears here and there. Anyway, this is the case of the Seoul Ferry Sinking Disaster. So many people on that ferry, and it just makes me so mad thinking about how this could have all been prevented if those responsible had been responsible. Let's begin. Before we get to the actual details of the ferry wreck, let's do some fun boat facts. Okay, maybe not so fun, but 100% necessary. Heads up guys, prior to this episode... I knew nothing about kayaks, boats, ferries, and all other maritime vessels. Even now, I'm still not very knowledgeable, so everything I'm about to tell you will be done in the way I understood it, and hopefully it won't be too incorrect, too abstract, or too boring for you. Before the Seoul ferry became the Seoul, it was actually a cargo transport ferry from Japan. It was called the Nami no Ue Ferry, and it was in operation from 1994 to 2012, so 18 years total. In October of 2012, the South Korean company Chonghaejin Marine bought it from Japan's A-Line Ferry for 11 million US dollars, and although it wasn't a new ferry by any means, it was still intact and in somewhat decent condition, but most definitely required some touch-ups and fixes. After Chonghaejin Marine registered this cargo ferry under their name, they began to make some changes, which included the renaming of the ferry. While fixing and remodeling the ferry is totally understandable and even necessary, what the company ended up doing was 100% unacceptable. The owner of Chonghaejin Marine was a man named Yu Byun-un, and boy, does he have a colorful history. Yu was born in 1941. He was a millionaire businessman and inventor, was quite reclusive, and was heavily involved in religion. When he was young, he was initially admitted to the Good News Mission Bible School in Korea, 
a missionary school established by both American and English missionaries. For whatever reason, though, he was soon kicked out, and in 1962, with the help of his then father-in-law, who also happened to be a pastor, they created the Evangelical Baptist Church of Korea, a.k.a. the Salvation Sect. Some say it's a cult, and since this guy is far from likable, I don't really have any problem seeing it as a cult. But that's just my bias. Anyway, that's all you need to know about the owner of Chonghaejin Marine for now, and we will talk about him some more later on. Now let's take a look at the sort of ungodly modifications the company did to the ferry. Before the ferry was purchased by Chonghaejin Marine, it was able to carry a total of 839 people, including both crew and passengers. It was also able to carry up to 90 cars and 60 trucks. Considering this ferry experienced a total of zero accidents during its 18 years in Japan, I would consider this its standard capacity. Once the ferry became the Seoul, though, the company spent about four months making a ton of changes that even made me very nervous, and I know nothing about ferries. First, they increased the cabin space on the third deck. Then they added more cabins on the fourth deck. The fifth deck was also remodeled into an exhibition hall. An increase of deck and cabins simply means more space, more people, more weight, but that also means more money. The ferry's cargo space was also somehow expanded. The ferry's gross tonnage was supposed to be 6,586 tons, but they increased it by 239 tons. So now you have the same exact ferry from before, but somehow it's able to carry 117 more people and a lot more cargo. The ferry's center of gravity has also been raised by 51 centimeters, which can cause some balancing issues. You could say some people only seem to care about profiting. So the ferry modifications were finally finished. Now what? In March of 2013, the Korean Register of Shipping, a non-profit organization that offers certification services for all maritime vessels, was used by Chonghaejin Marine for safety testing and various other inspections. Not shockingly, the Seoul passed all its inspections and regulatory checks with flying colors. The Seoul received its Sea Pollution Prevention Certificate, passed a ship inclining test, which tests its center of gravity and stability, and received its inspection certificate. How, you ask? Obviously by faking it. During testing and approval, they reduced the total amount of cargo weight by 500 tons and increased the ballast by about 400 tons. Ballast is used to stabilize vehicles, so you can usually find a ballast tank at the bottom of boats and ships, which is used to balance the ship. In other words, they kind of changed the numbers around for the testing so it looks reasonable, and that is how they passed and received their certifications. As if all that wasn't bad enough, the owners of Seoul once again made changes after the inspections, adding approximately 37 tons of marble to the exhibition deck. It's very disappointing and scary, really, knowing that so many people, so many companies, and so many regulation units 
are willing to cut corners just for their own benefit, completely disregarding the sort of disaster it could cause. So now that the ferry had somehow passed all of its safety regulations and requirements, they were ready to ferry passengers and cargo. They began their operations on March 15, 2013, making three trips per week between Incheon and Jeju Island. For about an entire year, everything went smoothly. No accidents, no malfunctions. I'm sure this made everyone feel safe, like nothing bad would ever happen. Unfortunately, though, everyone would learn of the truth very soon, in the worst way possible. On the evening of April 15, 2014, 476 passengers and 34 crew members got on board the civil ferry in South Korea, traveling from the northwestern city of Incheon to Jeju Island, located to the south of the Korean peninsula. This trip would only take about an hour if you travel by plane. But in this instance, the ferry would take approximately 13 hours. Nothing wrong with taking a ferry if you aren't in a hurry, right? You get to see the ocean view, relax with the ocean breeze, spend some time alone or with your friends and family. It's like a mini trip. Also, if you're not a fan of flying because planes might fall out of the sky, a ferry is perfect, right? Except... The Seoul was far from perfect. 325 passengers were juniors from Danwon High School going on a field trip. 14 passengers were teachers, including the school's vice principal. Aside from the people she was carrying, the ferry was also carrying about 2,000 plus tons of cargo. That's about 1,000 plus more than she's supposed to be carrying. As if that wasn't bad enough, the ballast tanks were also in need of maintenance since its last trip. Apparently, the ballast tanks need to be checked after and before every trip because it's important when it comes to balancing cargo loads during, before, and after. Crazy how so much negligence can happen in one place. The captain for this trip was a 69-year-old man named Lee Jun Suk, who actually wasn't the usual captain of the Seoul. Despite not being the regular captain, though, Lee was said to have been very experienced. It didn't seem like there was much to worry about. At least half of the crew weren't regular crew members. They worked wherever the job took them or worked part-time, so I suppose many of them weren't really familiar with the ferry. The Seoul was supposed to set sail at around 6.30pm on April 15th, but due to the fog and visibility issues, the departure time was delayed, and eventually at around 9pm, the ferry was off to Jeju Island. Must have been pretty exciting for the students who were on a field trip, getting to hang out with their friends, gossip, stay up late, play games, all those fun things you did with your friends when you were still kids. They were probably really looking forward to going to Jeju Island as well. If you're not familiar with Jeju, it's basically known as a beach resort island with a dormant volcano. It has tons of hiking spots and a beautiful crater lake. It was smooth sailing for the most part. Since it was an overnight ferry ride, people had assigned cabin spaces so they could get some rest. Most people went back to their cabins when it was bedtime, hoping to get some rest before they arrived at their destination the next morning. But of course, we know what happens next. 
At around 7.30 a.m. on April 16th, third mate Park Hankyul and helmsman Cho Jun-ki began their shift with coursing and steering the ferry. Visibility was good, and everything seemed to be functioning correctly. Everyone was feeling confident because they've traveled this route like hundreds of times already. They were quickly approaching the Mingle Channel, which could be quite tricky as its underwater currents can be quite strong. If not maneuvered properly, the ferry could get caught up in the currents, and that's not great. Between 8.30 and 8.45, the currents were getting stronger and harder to manage. I read a bunch of stuff on what was happening during the time with the two in charge of steering the ferry, so let me tell you this. I'm not going to go in depth with numbers and information on how many knots, degrees, or wind speed, because it's hard to understand and I want to avoid confusing myself and many of you. I'm not calling anyone dumb here, I'm just saying, people go to school for this kind of stuff, and I admit I wasn't able to pick up all of that with a few YouTube tutorials. Anyway, what basically happened was that the water currents were strong and treacherous. So third mate Park told Cho to change the course of the ship multiple times. After doing so several times, Cho turned around and told Park that the wheel didn't seem to be working. They had made an overly sharp turn which sealed the ferry's fate. Since it was already carrying twice its cargo weight limit, and since the ferry's ballast tanks weren't properly handled or adjusted, the Seoul was unable to handle the sharp turn and began tilting. This tilting of a ship is called listing, and it can either list to port, meaning tilt to the left, or list to starboard, meaning tilt to the right. The captain and all the crew members immediately gathered to check the situation, and they soon realized there was nothing they could do to change the current situation. At this time, the ferry was still serving breakfast, and most passengers had no idea what was going on. Except, maybe, the ferry felt a bit lopsided. The ferry was about 30 degrees tilted to one side now, and it was listing quite obviously. The crew members had to act fast. They had to signal for help and also had to inform the passengers of the situation. Or so you'd think. The emergency broadcast began at around 8.50am, repeatedly telling passengers, Do not move. Stay where you are. It's dangerous if you move, so stay where you are. Every crew member in the ferry also told passengers to stay where they are. Don't go out to the deck. Just stay put. At the same time the emergency broadcasting was going on, one high school student made the first emergency call at around 8.52 a.m., telling emergency services that the Seoul seemed to be sinking. The Coast Guard eventually received the call, and patrol vessel number 123 was immediately dispatched to check out what was going on. Incredible how the first distress call was made by a passenger, and not by the captain or a crew member. I believe a lot of the crew members who were actually not regulars on the Seoul were panicking and freaking out. But what about the captain? What about those who were experienced? At 8.55 a.m., the crew notified the Jeju Vessel Traffic Services Center of their current situation, and then the Korean Coast Guard was also notified. Here's a quick summary of the conversation between the Seoul crew and the Jeju Vessel Traffic Services. 
Sewell made the call out at 8.55 a.m., informing them that the ship was listing and that it was in danger. At 9 a.m., Sewell crew informs them that the ferry has listed to the left and the cargo containers have listed as well. Jeju VTS asked about casualties and injuries, and the Sewell crew member couldn't answer that, stating that it was impossible to tell. At around the same time the conversation was going on, the Jeju Coast Guard, the Mokpo Coast Guard, and various other groups were informed of the ferry situation. Did it help? Not really. So, long and complicated story short, a bunch of people were notified of the civil situation and time was running out. Around 9.20am, patrol boats and one helicopter were on their way, but it was 100% not enough to help save everyone. The ferry was so tilted at this point that evacuation was nearly impossible, and it was even impossible for the crew members to tell the passengers anything anymore because the broadcasting system on the ferry was no longer working. Most passengers, especially the students, continued to stay in their cabins, obeying the captain and the crew's initial order to stay put. Eventually, at around 9.30am, the captain was like, Okay, this is impossible. Let's evacuate. Except, not that many people got the memo. Many passengers had been told to put on life jackets, but that's about it. It was clear that they had no idea what was going to happen and they were also unsure of what to do. But, to be safe, they decided to listen to the captain's orders. At around 9.38am, all communications with the outside world was cut off, and many people could no longer stay put. So about 160 people, including most of the crew, dropped the lifeboats and jumped overboard while most of the passengers stayed on the ferry. At 9.46am, Patrol vessel number 123 showed up, but they actually had no idea what kind of situation they were dealing with until they arrived at the scene. Patrol vessel 123 had been dispatched by the Coast Guard, and they did not get enough information, nor did they have direct contact with the Seoul crew. They were basically told to go check the situation out and save people. The rescuers knew there was nothing they could do except tell passengers to abandon the ferry in order to be rescued, and guess who they rescued first? The captain and some of the first and second mates. So basically, the captain and those who knew what was going on were the first ones to be rescued off the sinking ferry, and they left everyone else to figure things out for themselves, including 325 teenagers. The Korean Ministry of National Defense, the Ministry of Health and Welfare, the Ministry of Oceans and Fisheries, the Korean Army Special Warfare Command, and a ton of other units were notified, and people were sent to aid in the rescue operation. By the time most of them arrived, though, the ferry had already sank, and there was really not much they could do. So the ferry made a sharp turn, began to list to one side, and eventually completely fell over and was lying on its side it ended up turning completely upside down as it was sinking. Seoul was sinking at a steady pace, and at around 1pm that afternoon on the 16th, the ferry had completely disappeared from the surface of the ocean. The government and all related units mentioned earlier spent the following days and weeks trying to recover the bodies of those who did not make it out of the ferry alive. 
There were dive teams from private companies and civilian divers trying to help, trying to gain access into the ferry. There were lots of ups and downs, to say the least, and eventually the government stated that they had plans to salvage the wreckage soon. It was a horrible situation to be in for everyone, and it was also extremely chaotic. As the situation was ongoing, several media outlets were rushing to publish their findings, and unfortunately, most of them had incorrect information, which made things even more chaotic. Many reported that everyone made it out alive, some said that most made it out alive, and some said that all the students were fine, and the numbers were different for every news outlet. Imagine having a loved one on that ferry, and you are waiting for the news, only to get a ton of different numbers, and still not knowing what's true. Most bodies were recovered during the following weeks, and as of November of 2014, nine bodies were still missing. At that time, 295 had been found dead. So if you can do basic math, a total of 304 had lost their lives. I know that nine bodies are still missing, but the odds of finding those nine people alive? Not very likely. Out of the 304 deaths, 250 of them were high school students on their field trip. 172 people survived that day and most of the crew members, and the captain, of course, made it out alive. The Seoul incident was definitely one of the worst ferry disasters in the history of South Korea, and probably the rest of the world. While 304 people died on the ferry, the death does not stop here. Many people while on rescue missions also died via accidents. Although the vice principal of Danwon High School survived the incident, he decided to take his own life only days after he was rescued. Imagine being someone who survived, the immense sense of survivor's guilt you must carry with you. A civilian diver, Kim Guan Hong, who spent weeks and months after the tragedy fishing out bodies and testifying as a witness, also killed himself because he couldn't bear to live with all the things he had seen. Kim was quoted as saying, the victims were tangled together in their utter terror, and I prayed for and cradled each one of them as I brought them. Many civilian divers also felt betrayed by their government. These people were civilians. They were helping because they saw a situation that needed their help, and they did it. Instead of personally thanking them and showing gratitude, the government ended up indicting some of them for, quote, errors in the process, accusations of taking financial advantage, end quote. These people put their lives out there when the government should have been doing their job. They suffered injuries, immense trauma, and they get this shit in return? Imagine being someone who had to spend weeks in the water looking for bodies, most of them teenagers. These are pretty much things you can never unsee, never forget. So now we move on to the investigation, the who, what, where, when, why, and how of the disaster. Let's first look at why this ferry could have capsized. Number one is the obvious one. The ones in charge made an abrupt and sharp turn that caused some of the cargo to shift quickly, which caused the ferry to lose its balance and thus start to tilt. Number two is somewhat directly related to number one which is the cargo overload. 
It was later discovered that the Seoul was carrying around 3,000 tons of cargo, not 2,000, which would make it about 2,000 tons more than it is supposed to be carrying. Number three is also somewhat directly related to the previous two. The ballast tanks were improperly adjusted, or rather, it was not adjusted at all. It was found that the tanks only contained 580 tons of ballast water, whereas it should have been carrying around 2,000 tons. Remember, the ballast tanks help to balance ships when things get rocky, and clearly they did not have enough water in there to help balance the ferry. So these three reasons were seen more as a direct and immediate cause. Number four would be the illegal changes made to the ferry in the first place. Remember how Chonghejin Marine added a crapload of cabins and also created that exhibition hall? Yeah, those were illegal and not safe for a reason. It was also later discovered that the safety checks and certificates the Seoul received were basically all forged. Shocking. Now let's take a look at those who were seen as responsible for the disaster. The most obvious ones would be Chonghejin Marine and the then-owner, Yu Byung-un, as they were the ones who ordered all those renovations and additions to be made to the ferry. Even if Yu wasn't personally handling the ferry, he was still responsible. Then we have those who allowed these people to pass the safety inspections, despite none of it was safe and legal. They literally looked the other way and made the inspections easier in order for the Seoul to pass all her regulation checks. And for what? Obviously, they didn't think anything would happen. And that kind of thinking is what ended up taking away 304 lives and causing trauma to a whole bunch of other people. Now, let's talk about the president and the government. It was said that during the sinking of the Seoul, the president at the time, Park Gun-hae, was nowhere to be found. Not only was she unresponsive and not acting as the leader, it was rumored that she was in her bedroom either sleeping or getting a facial and getting her hair done, or something along those lines. The whole situation was pretty messed up from the start, yes, but according to sources, President Park was not made aware of the Seoul situation until 10.20am, and by then, the ferry had been sinking for at least an hour. All her commands and all the government actions were severely delayed for whatever strange reason, be it incompetency or laziness, but President Park did not show up at the Disaster Control Center till 5 p.m. of that day, at least four hours after the Seoul completely sank. Of course, the official response from the government was always the same. The president was taking care of other matters, the president had other duties, blah blah blah. I don't expect presidents to be superheroes, but seriously? It was also stated that the government's response and rescue mission was all done for publicity. They sent out people to help, yes, but when the civilian divers tried to help, they prohibited them from doing so. Why would you do that? The government was also criticized for focusing on the reporting of the incident rather than saving people. They wanted to show the Coast Guard saving people, and it was even said that the rescuers were asked to wait until the media helicopter showed up to do anything. I know it's not directly the government or the then-president's fault that the ferry capsized, but I feel like if they had responded better, had better priorities, 
Maybe it could have been less disastrous. Maybe a few more people wouldn't have to be missing their loved ones. A ton of people were indicted in court and sentenced to prison, as they should. Captain Lee, who was supposed to keep everything in check and also the one who abandoned ship first, was of course under intense media and public scrutiny. Remember, Captain Lee wasn't the regular captain of the Seoul. The regular Seoul captain, Captain Shin, had actually warned Chonhejin Marine that the ferry was very unstable. He also made a request for a malfunctioning steering gear days before the incident. And what did they do? They threatened to fire him. Fifteen other crew members were also put on trial for negligence and for causing the ferry to sink. The prosecutors were seeking the death penalty for Captain Lee, but although he was 100% guilty of negligence, they weren't unable to prove that he had any intent to actually kill everyone on board. That's probably not surprising. It was a horrible accident that could have probably been avoided on so many levels, and although he wasn't responsible for the ferry's modifications, he was a complete coward. But did he want to kill? I don't think so. On November 11th of 2014, Captain Lee was initially sentenced to 36 years in prison, but it was later changed to life imprisonment. And seeing that he's already in his late 60s, 36 years is pretty much a life sentence anyway. Captain Lee told reporters, quote, I am sorry to the people of South Korea for causing a disturbance, and I bow my head in apology to the families of the victims, end quote. Most other crew members indicted also received up to 12 years, and the chief engineer was sentenced to 10 years. It might seem like a huge difference between the captain's sentencing and the others, but then again, he was the captain. He was the one giving orders. Like it or not, he was the one in charge and responsible for everyone. It was also stated that although there was no intention to kill, the fact that the crew members continued to tell everyone, especially the students, to stay put and not go anywhere, was a significant cause. If only they had alerted everyone when they knew there was no hope. These kids, they were being kids. Not only were they listening to the adults, they were Asian kids. And obedience and respect is a huge thing in a culture like Korea. As an adult myself, I really don't think I would necessarily know any better especially in emergency situations like these. The trial was intensely scrutinized by everyone, and many parents who lost their children in the ferry were very frustrated over the sentencing. They lost their children. Why do these people get to go on living their lives? There was also one important person everyone was trying to get in court, the owner of Chonghaeji Marine, Yu Byung-un. As soon as the ferry capsized, and as soon as he caught wind of his possible responsibility, he disappeared. It's extremely disappointing how people are so irresponsible and so awful, really. South Korea initially offered 50 million Korean won for information on his whereabouts, and it was later raised to 500 million won, which is about 488,000 USD. Clearly, everyone wanted to find this guy. Before he could face the court and all the grieving family members, though, his decomposing body was found in a field in the city of Suncheon, located in southern South Korea. According to sources, 
he was found wearing a seemingly expensive Italian suit, and scattered around him were his personal belongings, including a copy of his book and an empty bottle of shark liver oil health tonic. By the time his body was found, though, it was already too decomposed, so it was impossible to tell how he died. Do you think it was suicide? Or did somebody kill him and dump him in a field in the middle of nowhere? His son, Yoo Hyuk-ki, who was in charge of the company at the time, left Korea not long after the sinking of the Seoul. I guess the apple really doesn't fall far from the tree. You have to know, these people are incredibly rich. They had the means to get away, and not only that, they owned so much property they would have no problem living off their money while in hiding. At the time, his whereabouts were unknown, but he was definitely a wanted man by Korean authorities. Finally, in 2020, as in, yes, only last year, he was arrested in one of his homes in New York for embezzlement from one of the churches his father founded. The whole church situation with the Yu family is apparently very complicated and quite interesting, so maybe one day, I'll talk about that in another episode. To no one's surprise, the 75 students from Danwon High School who made it off the ferry were burdened with immense survivor's guilt. They were quoted as saying, If there was something that we did wrong, I think it was getting off the Seoul ferry alive. These students did not believe they received any help from the crew that day, and that those who did make it out alive had to depend on themselves. The school closed for a couple weeks after the ferry sank, and when it was reopened, the school had set up numerous shrines and hundreds of flower arrangements with yellow ribbons to remember the students who died that day. Yellow ribbons have various different meanings, including military support, cancer support, suicide awareness, etc. In this case, the yellow ribbon was used to commemorate the students that died on the ferry. It's quite fitting, as it also represents missing children. Several parents were interviewed, and most of them expressed anger towards the captain, the crew, and the government. In short, they no longer had any hope for the authorities. I know it might be silly to expect the government to literally love us or care about us as if we were their kids, but either way, the government works for the people, and even if there is no love, they should be making the citizens happy. This is about responsibility and accountability. Many protests were held weeks and months, even years after the sinking of the ferry. Protesters marched with photos of their loved ones. They marched in protest of the Korean broadcasting system for their awful reporting. And they most definitely marched to the president's headquarters. Kwanghwamun Square, an area known for history, also became a popular spot for protesters. A 30-foot-tall statue was also erected there, called the Candle of Hope and it signified the hope for a better Korea, a better future, and of course, to remember the victims. Protesters also urged the government to make changes and reforms so history wouldn't repeat itself. They made their protests loud and clear by fasting. They called for the impeachment of the then-president, President Park. The government could no longer ignore all the voices from the people, and eventually, an impeachment vote took place on December 9, 2016. She was voted out of office on a vote of 8-0, to zero, which really says a lot. 
There was also a lot of political stuff going on behind the scenes, including her firing a bunch of people that opposed her and her ties to a religious leader. She was later on sentenced 25 years in prison. I guess this is the kind of justice the people wanted, but even then, it wasn't enough to undo the damage or bring back all the lives that were lost forever. Various countries, of course, sent their thoughts and prayers and also tried to help in any way possible. The Japanese Coast Guard had offered support initially, but the Korean Coast Guard rejected their offer, stating at the time that it was not necessary. Yeah, right. Then U.S. President Barack Obama also offered his condolences and said that the U.S. would assist in the search if needed. Pope Francis visited South Korea in 2014, and he was seen wearing a yellow ribbon, stating that he, quote, hoped that South Korean people take the civil tragedy as an occasion for moral and spiritual rebirth, end quote. I know a lot of people like to mock the whole thoughts and prayers thing, but sometimes it's really all one can do. Before I end this episode, let's talk about the salvaging of the Seoul. So the ferry sank in April of 2014. It took four years for the salvage operation to finally begin. I personally think four years is a long wait, and since there were still nine bodies that were never recovered, you would think they would want to bring up the ferry as soon as possible, as the bodies could still be in the ferry. A total of 500 people worked day and night on the salvage operation, including 50 divers. The ferry was found 40 meters under the ocean, still lying on its side. So here's what they did to pull the sail out of the water. They first used a crane to sort of lift the ferry up a bit so it wasn't lying on its side. Then they pumped out the water in the ballast tanks. Then they attached these huge airbags to the ferry, and once they were filled up with air, they kind of would serve as a ferry life vest. Once the sail resurfaced, it was towed to the port where they would continue investigations into the sinking and hopefully recover more bodies. While a few more bodies were recovered during the search, five more remained missing, including two students and a teacher. The investigations continued on for more than a year, and the conclusion was not surprising. Chonghejin Marine was found extremely culpable in many ways. And while most people do agree with this finding, they found it unfair that no government or national organizations were found responsible for mishandling the situation. Most families still feel like they never got the answers they were looking for, that the investigation was not thorough enough, and that those responsible were never brought to justice. Why did the captain abandon everyone? Why didn't the Coast Guard attempt to rescue more people? Why did the government take so long to respond? And what the hell was the president doing during those critical seven hours? The families were hoping that the new president, Moon Jae-in, would be able to provide answers for them. But so far, they have not received any. What are your thoughts? So there you have it. One of the worst and most likely avoidable ferry sinking incidents in the history of South Korea. To summarize again... All this could have really been avoided if the ferry was regulated properly, if the ferry wasn't modified illegally, if the ferry wasn't overloaded with cargo, if the authorities had been honest and truthful about the ferry's condition, 
If the captain and the crew gave correct evacuation information and didn't abandon everyone, and also if the government and rescue units had responded in a timely manner. I know, so many ifs and buts and could have beens. I don't know if I did this case any justice because, to be honest, there was a lot more spin off information that I wasn't able to include, mainly because I would have spiraled off into too many other side stories. And it would have ended up a bit confusing. It's extremely tragic how everything went down, and I could never imagine ever being in a life threatening situation like this. How surreal it must have been, how lonely and terrifying it must have felt, and how powerless one must have felt. Sometimes these situations are out of our control, and the most we can do is fight to survive. Hopefully, the world is now a better place with lessons learned. And with more honest people. It may not be easy, but we could definitely start by working on ourselves. This was a hard case to cover. Not only was it depressing, it was a little all over the place. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please stay safe. And till next time. Before I go, I would like to thank my newest Patreon members, Cesar Benuto and Shaylee Downs. Just so you know, Pledging and donating to my podcast really helps with the cost of the podcast. There are fees involved, so all this is very much appreciated. I would also like to thank my newest podcast reviewer, and your name is a lot of numbers, and so I don't want to bore everyone, but I think you know who you are, and you're from Australia. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to the Asian Madness podcast. If you enjoyed my content, please rate and review me on iTunes. If you would like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or email me at asianmadnesspod at gmail.com. Mealtime inspiration. It's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over thirty thousand mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over six hundred dollars each week. You can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.